Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church this morning. Uh, anybody who's on Skype, I do want to remind you to please uh, mute your microphone and uh, turn your camera off at this time. Thank you. Let's begin by praying. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the light, and that he came here so that he would die for the sins of the world. He came to save. He came that whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. Father, today we ask that as we continue in the Gospel of John, that we would continue to be more and more marveling at who Jesus Christ is. All that he's revealed to be in the Gospel of John and in the rest of the Word of God. We ask also this morning, Father, that you would watch over and take care of all the saints. We pray for those this morning in particular who are having difficult problems, whether it be health-wise, family issues, money issues, whatever those things may be, Father, we would just ask, and we know you will, that you would come through for them and give them the grace and the encouragement that they need at this time. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end of service today. That's why these little cups are in front of me. Does everybody have one now that I mention it? Okay, great. Good job. All right, let's begin then. Let's begin. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. John chapter 8, residing in verse 21 this morning. John 8, 21. And we're going to go through from from verse 21 to verse 30 this morning. So I'll begin by reading John chapter 8, verse 21. Then he said again to them, I will go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. And he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. I just want to point out in verse 30 as we get started this morning that Jesus has performed several miraculous signs. But notice here that he didn't perform a miraculous sign and that many believed in him. And the reason was simply because he spoke words. And that's a great lesson for all of us, that it's the word of God that's alive and powerful. Also want to set the stage. He's still in the temple where he had been at the beginning of chapter eight when the um, Pharisees and the uh, Scribes brought that woman caught in adultery. 
he'll remain there um, more or less until the end of chapter nine. So this is a long sequence of teaching and of uh, conflict again between Jesus and the and the leaders of the Jewish people. The conflict gets heightened every time we move from chapter to chapter, and we'll see some of that this morning as well. All right, this section of chapter 8, verses 21 through 30, deals with two related subjects primarily. The first one is the question they ask in verse 25, who is Jesus? Who Jesus is is a major part of this section, by the way, as it is throughout the whole gospel. Um, but, But here there are specific things that he's telling them for the first time, and we're actually going to focus on those things this morning. Who is Jesus? And especially in his relationship with the Father, there's an awful lot that he says here, again, bringing to to the forefront the fact that his father called him and sent him with this message. He's always with him. And uh, even, by the way, when he goes to the cross, the Father will still be with him. So who Jesus is is a a main theme in this uh, passage this morning. The second one is his urgent warning to his Jewish audience. We're going to look at this. You know, um, this is this is something where at this point in time in the conflict, you'd expect that the tension would be the the Jews, the Jewish leaders warning him. And of course, they've done a lot of that. But here he's going to he's turning around and warning the Jews. And and we're going to see that it's a very urgent, pointed warning to them, even though they won't understand it. Um, They won't understand it until he dies on the cross. Nevertheless, it's very urgent message to him. All right. Now, these things this morning that who Jesus is and his warning to his Jewish audience, it's not the first time Jesus has spoken of these things in the Gospel of John. But again, as we move forward, they get heightened and heightened and heightened in intensity, more intensity. The things that the um, Jewish leaders say to Jesus are more harsh and threatening. The things that Jesus says to the Jewish people become more urgent and intense. And so forth. So they they take on a heightened intensity. So even though you might say, well, I've heard this before, the thing you want to focus in on is, well, first of all, Jesus keeps having to repeat certain things because again and again they show their ignorance or their unbelief about these very things. I mean, like for example, if you look at um, verse twenty-seven, just as an example, um, he's speaking about the one who sent him, and that the, the, he speaks the words of the one who sent him, and then look at verse twenty-seven. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Now, he had been speaking them to them about the Father for chapters and chapters, right? So, you know, now you could make a pretty good point that this is willful, quote, ignorance, that they heard it, and, and, and but they didn't have the ears to hear, so that they rejected it. That's probably what's going on. Nevertheless, he's coming back again and again and again, to a certain extent, so that they will have no excuse, that they've heard this again and again, and they kept rejecting it. So time is running out for the Jews. The cross, one, one way to visualize the Gospel of John is to see the cross in the distance from the very beginning. As a matter of fact, in chapter one, John says, um, this, is the, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Chapter one, the cross. And again and again, but every time we turn the chapter page or, or whatever, we find out that the cross is getting closer as, as the action moves Interestingly enough, the action moves um, to to to, Israel, to Jerusalem. Um, it'll stay there for the rest of this gospel, pretty much, with a couple of moves in and out. 
And so he's in the place of where he's going to be crucified. And then it keeps getting closer and closer. And as that happens, again, the hostility against him is raised. His warning to them is raised because they have a certain amount of time to, to believe in him. And when he when he gets to the cross, it'll be the, the absolute last moment. And and even there, there are only a few that do believe in him on the basis of that, unfortunately. So that's what's happening here. It's the intensity. It's the urgency. It's the fact that time is running out for the Jews. You could they might have seen it that time was running out for him because they were thinking we're going to get him. We're going to arrest him. It's only a matter of time. But in, in reality, uh, that time of his death was picked by his father in eternity past. He had no you know, he knew about that and it wasn't actually a threat because it was why he came. So actually the, the pressure, as it were, is on the Jews to believe in him. Okay. And that's the time that's really running out. Look at John chapter eight again and starting again in verse twenty one. John eight twenty one. Then he said to them again. He had said this almost the same thing in chapter seven. We're going to see that in just a moment. Then he said to them again, I go away and you will seek me. By the way, what he said, I go away here. He's speaking of returning to the father. Now, we know that he, the pathway back to the father is going to lead to the cross, the tomb, the resurrection, the ascension. They don't know any of that. But this is what he's talking about. Okay, I go away and you will seek me. By the way, this statement, you will seek me, it's it's actually saying not that they will seek Jesus because they never believed in who he was, but they will seek who Jesus is, which is the Messiah. They'll keep looking for the Messiah and because he's already come. So they're not going to find him. I will. I go away. and You will seek me and you will die in your sin. This is the first time he said this. You will die in your sin. Notice it's sin singular where I am going. Heaven, ultimately, you cannot come. They cannot come because they're not born again. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself. What a horrible thing to say. They understood. The interesting thing is they understood more than they let on. Because they did. They knew that when he said, I'm going away, that he was talking about dying. Right. But they, they didn't want to face the, the meaning of that. So instead, they're like they're ridiculing him. They're they're they're, they're cruel and so forth. He, he will, he's not going to kill himself, will he? Since he says where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them. You are from below, it's of this world. I am from above, heaven. You are of this world, I am not of this world. In other words, there's all the difference in the world between them and him. And and because they never see any of that, right? I mean, in fact, they look down on him. This is the one who's breaking the Sabbath and so forth. Like they they didn't they had no idea of who they were dealing with, or maybe they did and they didn't want to accept it. Twenty-four, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, plural. Or unless you believe that I am, there's no he in the Greek here. Um, it's okay to say I am he, but really it's just two Greek words, ego, I me, which means I am. But you will die in your sins. So this should sound familiar to those of us who have been studying chapter by chapter the, the Gospel of John, because Jesus said something very similar to this back in chapter 7. I'd like you now to turn to chapter 7, just back one chapter, starting in verse 33. John chapter 7, verse 33. Context here is the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths. 
verse 33, therefore Jesus said, for a little while longer, see, time is running out, for a little while longer, I'm with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So, so far, it's almost identical what he said. A few differences, which we'll point out. But for a little while longer, I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. For where I am, you cannot come. Verse 35. The Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go? That we will not find him. He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? There's sarcasm here. But it's nothing like what they said in the passage this morning. Is he going to kill himself? Right. You're saying, yeah, he's going to leave us and go to the Greeks, you know, and then probably under their breath, good riddance, you know. But um, so in any event, they 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 it's not clear here whether they understood he was talking about his death or not. It could be that they were just asking the question out of ignorance. In any event, there's some irony and sarcasm in what he's saying, what they're saying about him. Verse 36. What is this statement that he said? You will seek me. Will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Lots of similarities between this passage that he spoke in chapter 7 and what he's saying now in chapter 8. Let's go back to John chapter 8, verse 21. I want to point out one thing that Jesus says that is a clear raising of the stakes, as it were. Look at chapter 8, verse 21. Then he said to him, them, I go away and you will seek me. Now that sounds so far just like what he said in chapter 7, but notice the next expression. And we'll die in your sin. You see, that adds some intensity. You know, he's not just saying he's going to go away and they won't be with him. He's saying you're going to die in your sin. That's a wake up call. Okay, if they if the idea is to hear, you will die in your sin and where I am going, you cannot come. So clearly what he's saying is, is if you when you die in your sin, there's automatically there's no way you can possibly be where I am. It's one or the other. Right. People are either going to die as unbelievers or they're going to die as believers and be with Jesus. It's just one or the other. So, again, sarcasm, irony, chapter seven. He's not intending to teach the Greeks, is he? But here in chapter eight, it's turned a corner. You see why? Because he has said you will die in your sin. It's a, it's a, so, so Jesus is raising the stakes here, and it's a matter of life and death, and they can sense. No, nobody, nobody misunderstands the word die. I mean, they could, but at least there's bad. They know dying in your sin can't be good. So he's, he's raised the stakes. He's saying you'll die in your sin. But then again, they raise the intensity themselves. Because notice these, they say, um, well, I'm, I'm going to read the passage in a second. So. Chapter 7, he's he's not intending to teach the Greeks, is he? Chapter 8, look at verse 22. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? You see, when Jesus brings up their death, right, they want to change the subject. Not only to his death, because they don't have any understanding of why he's going to die, but in in a put down, in a vicious manner of speaking, right? He will, since he says, he, where I'm going, you cannot come. The Jews are saying, surely he will not kill himself. Once again, there's bitterness and contempt. And it's 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 kind of a uh, he raises the stakes. They raises raise the intensity. He he makes the warning more urgent. They make their hostility to him more intense. That's what's going on. It'll continue to go on. Verse 
utter bitterness and contempt, where it was ironic and sarcastic of them, what they said in chapter 7 here, bitterness, contempt, hostility. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, here's the irony, though. He is going to die before he goes back to the Father. So that much, they did, they, they were... They, they were un, unwittingly telling the truth here in, to a certain extent because he is going to die before. You know, his way back to the father where he says, where I am going, that way that he is going includes his death on the cross as well as his resurrection. But clearly he's not going to commit suicide. I mean, we know that. But it's very interesting how they put that because, again, this is going to show for us the the blindness of, of the Jewish leaders. Just to illustrate that, I'd like to turn now to Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. You know, they kept thinking they were going to set a trap for Jesus. You know, he will get him where, where he's... We can capture him and put him in prison and put him to death. But in fact, the, they fall into the trap again and again that they've set for him. And and here, you see, when they say that he, he they talk about him killing himself. <coughs> in fact, it's the exact reverse that's going to happen. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Listen to what the apostle Peter said. To the Jews on Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is, is uh, right after the Lord Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and goes into heaven, ascends into heaven. The Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles and disciples and in the place where they were hiding. And then that just emboldens them, frees them, inspires them. They all come out. The Jews are from every location, every nation that surrounds uh, Jer- Jerusalem and Judea. They're all in in. Jerusalem to celebrate one of the three feasts of the year when they were supposed to come to Jerusalem, Pentecost, and then the great miracle where all the apostles are speaking and the same message, but in all the different languages that those men speak. And then Peter then then preaches about that, the significance of what's happening. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. And notice the next statement, just as you yourselves know. They had no excuse. Now, this is this is actually a, a summary statement for the seven signs, among other things, that are in the Gospel of John. And um, clearly, I mean, it's it's even the blind man. Who, who gave back his sight knew he was from God. Even Nicodemus knew he was from God. So there was there was if it was ignorance, it was willful ignorance on those who would reject that. So what happens? They say he says, "Men of Israel, talking to the whole nation, listen to these words: Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man." Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You know how we keep saying his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. 
Why? Because there was the hour that was picked by the Father in eternity past. That hour hadn't come, and nothing. Jesus wouldn't be arrested until that hour that the Father had pointed to and said, "That's the time." So this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So Jesus is going to die. Somebody's going to take his life. Somebody's going to put him to death, but it won't be him. It will be the men of Israel. You see that? This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. In other words, here's the responsibility. The Romans, they were carrying out orders. As a matter of fact, we know Pilate wanted to release him. He found no guilt in him. But because he was a coward, he wasn't willing to stand up to the Jews. It wasn't, he didn't want to kill him. The Jews wanted to kill him. And I say the Jews, I don't mean the Jewish people as a whole. I keep emphasizing this because over the years, this particular expression in the Gospel of John has been abused to try to make people anti-Semitic. You know, so that that is not what's going on. It's the Jewish leadership at that time. That's what they're talking about. That's what John's talking about here. And Peter, again, verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, the Romans, and put him to death. No, he is not going to kill himself. The fact of the matter is, is you are going to have him nailed to a cross. It's you. It's your decision. That led to him being put to death. Verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Now, to be sure, this is all future. to the Jews that Jesus is speaking to in John chapter 8. Nevertheless, when you look at things in terms of God's perspective, you can see the tremendous irony of, of a lot of the things that the Jews say about Jesus Christ. In, in, in this in this gospel. All right, let's go back now to chapter 8, verse 21. Oops. Should have had a marker there, but I didn't. Go back to John chapter 8, verse 21. They talk about him killing himself. But, but Jesus is going to, has talked about the fact that the Jews will die in their sin. Look at, look at um, chapter 8, verse 21. Then he, then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me. I'm going back to my father in heaven. You will seek the Messiah and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. I want to I just spend a few minutes this morning on something that's easy to miss but very significant. In verse 21, when he says, you will die in your sin, he uses the singular. One sin, a singular sin, or even better, a sin as, as, a, as an entity, as one overall entity. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So in chat, here in verse 21, he says, speaking of sin in the singular. Now look at verse 23 to 24. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your singular plural. Plural. Interesting. There's no accidents, by the way. The Holy Spirit didn't forget to put the S on the first time. All right. 
There's a reason. There's something significant here. We're going to spend a couple of minutes to look at what that is. Again, in verse 23, he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So that raises a question. What's the difference between sin and sins? I want to give you a couple of definitions. The first one is is sin. You're already over there. Come on. There. When sin is in the singular, it is talking about the entity called sin. All right? It's not individual personal sins. It's sin. And and, that, and the best way I can think of to describe this is, is it is the seat of the rebellion against God. That's what sin ultimately is. Rebelling against God. It's doing things that are against his word. But there's something that is basic in the human race called sin singular. It indwells us from the moment we're born. That's called the flesh. So it's that entity. It's that rebellion that is going on. Started, of course, by Satan. All right. He's the ultimate uh, re, uh, packager of sin, if I could put it that way, or embodiment of sin. Singular. The rebellion against God. This sin singular Every one of us has a manifestation of it in our very bodies. Right? It's called the flesh. Right? The spirit wars against the flesh. That flesh is the manifestation of sin in our bodies. The Bible calls that the flesh. But here Jesus warns them. He's saying, unless something changes, you will die in your sin. You will die in your sins. Well, the question is, what will change? Well, he answers that. Notice in verse 24, therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. What is he saying? He's saying it. it, I'm warning you. Okay, if nothing changes, you will die in your sin. You will die in your sins. There's only one way to avert this oncoming tragedy. And it's very simply to believe that I am. That's what he's saying. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins question, of course, is what does he mean by that? Right? What, what does he mean by I am? We're going to take a look at that in a minute. But for now, I want you to understand that he's saying that if you refuse to believe, you've already been judged. You will die in your sin. You will die in your sins. The wrath of God will remain on you. That's quite a heavy warning that he's given here. This is no laughing matter. This is no you know optional thing that they can do as a religious practice. This is everything. It's a matter of life and death. All you need to do is believe that I am. That's what Jesus is telling them. Okay, so the issue is believing. So the question then becomes, what's the, when, it, when it comes to sin and sins, what's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever? Right, that's the question. Well, the, the, the first thing, we're talking about sin singular, rebellion against God, sin in the flesh. Believers, as believers in Christ, all of us who are believers in Christ have been freed from that. Freed from that. Not that it doesn't still exist in our bodies, because it does. But the issue is it's no longer a master. It's no longer a master. We are freed from the bondage of sin. We are, we are as, the, as the Bible says in Romans 6, and we're going to turn there in a minute, we are dead to sin. Not by anything we did. And a, lot of people, a lot of people think the Christian way of life is, is dying to sins one at a time. Well, that's not, that's, that's, I don't know how you do that, so don't ask me about that. The fact is, we've already died to sin 
the center of the rebellion, we've already died to, meaning it is no longer master over us. We've been freed from that bondage. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. A lot of people shy away from Romans 6. I think for a couple of reasons. I think I think the one of the big reasons why people tend not to spend too much time in chapter 6 is because they don't like what it says. It doesn't match their theology of sin. Okay. The other thing about it is that it's difficult sometimes to understand. You have to really take your time um, to really understand what's being said because you have to take not just one verse but the whole paragraph and say, what is he saying in total when he talks about all these different things? But it's worth it. Romans 6 is one of the most freeing chapters in the Bible. It deals with something at the same time um, transcendent, something that we can't see that happened when the moment we believed in Christ. And, at, and on the other hand, it's also incredibly practical. It, it's saying, well, what is it? What is the issue with my sin and my sins? And what has God done about it? All right, look at Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? That's re- referring to chapter 5, which just ended, where he's talking about the grace of God, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall, notice this, now shall we who died to sin. It's a statement of fact. It already happened. We don't have to die to sins. Right? It's already happened. We've died to sin, the center of the rebellion. All right. So God went right to the heart of the issue. He condemned sin in the flesh. When Christ was on the cross, sin itself. We've died to sin. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know? It's an issue of knowing. That's why the word of God needs to be preached so people know and remember and apply it and refresh their minds so that when when they're in a situation in the future where they need this truth to avoid taking captive, then they have it. But do you not know that all of us, every believer, who has been baptized into Christ Jesus. There's no water here, by the way. The word baptized doesn't always mean baptized in water. Right? It, 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 base, it really talks about an identification where someone is placed into and identified with either someone or something. But here, who are we placed into? Christ Jesus. We have been placed into and permanently identified with Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means that we have been placed into and permanently identified with his death. With his death. When Christ died, we died. This is the amazing, amazing freeing truth that Romans 6 adds to the picture. Christ, Everyone who has been baptized into Christ Jesus has been baptized, placed into and identified with forever his death. Therefore, we have been, in certain respects, his death is the most significant thing about us, about us, for two reasons. Here, first of all, it's going to be the issue of sin itself in our flesh. And then the other reason is that sin, sin, plural, have been dealt with. Okay. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him. When he was buried, we were buried through baptism into death, 
so that as Christ was raised from the dead, here's the rest of the story, to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. What is he saying? He's saying there's some things that that have been finalized. Okay? Your relationship to sin as a master is over. You're dead to sin. You've been buried with Christ. And now you have been raised up with him, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2. We have been identified in in his resurrection. So we too might walk in newness of life. That's the whole picture. The picture is deal with sin. All right? Then there's the burial, which is that we are now dead, as it were. We're in the, in the grave with him. And then resurrection, rise to new life. Cut him off completely from the old man and then put him in the new man. Resurrection. That allows us to live a new, a new life. Verse 5, for if we have become united with him. See, that's baptism now. United with him in the likeness of his death. And we have. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing that what's the key? this knowing this if somebody is ignorant of this is it going to do them any good no all right i mean it'll the fact will but in terms of being able to have access to it to to be realizing your freedom to be realizing that you're not in bondage to, to, to the flesh any longer knowing this that our old man hate the translation self here by the way i don't hate too much but the word the word is is anthropos it's, it's man. And the thing about it is, is there's one. There's one old man. It's not like we all have a little old man, right? We were all in one man, right? We were all in Adam. We all shared in the likeness of Adam, fallen man. That's the one old man. So it's the opposite of self, by the way, in the sense that it's not about us. It's about what God has done um, to the old man on the cross. That old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin, that sin in the in the that's sin in the flesh, our body of sin might be done away with. What is this? What is this strategy of the cross? And is so that he will die for our sins, we'll die with him, so that we can be freed from the bondage of sin in the flesh, I mean, done away with, put out of business is what they're really talking about, so that you we would no longer be slaves to sin. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. That 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 bond has been broken forever. Now, you can sin is still in you, okay? But you are no longer in sin. That's and that sounds a little confusing, but you still have sin in the flesh, but you're no longer totally in bondage to it, like as we all were before we believed in Christ. Why? Summing up, for he who has died is freed from sin. Freed from sin. Have you died? With Christ? If you're a believer, you have. Therefore, have you been freed from sin? Yes. Does it say you will free yourself from sin? Does it say you're going to be freed from sin in the future? No, it's it's already happened. What's the key here? The key here is to believe it. (laughs) That changes everything, you see, because we know we're in a battle in Ephesians 6, not against flesh and blood, not against people, but the spiritual forces of wickedness. What's their strategy? The strategy is, is to tell us lies about God and about ourselves. When they can do that, then we will lose hope. Then we will be totally exposed to the attacks. Okay, that's their goal. They know that. They, they know our salvation is secure. They can't do anything about it. Okay, but they can convince us that it's not. <laughs> right? We'll never we'll never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But they can, can do a great job, especially people who don't 
study the word of God, who don't hear that message over and over and over again. If you don't hear, and I'm reminded of the fact that nothing will ever come between you and the love of God in Christ Jesus. If you don't hear that, then you'll be a sucker for what the world and the flesh and and the principalities and powers are going to do to you because of the fact that we still have sin in the flesh. You see? See, our secret weapon is the armor of God, right? What's the armor? Okay, it's salvation as a, the, the truth about who we are, the, the breastplate of righteousness, the truth about who we are in Christ, and so forth. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's, that is what will make us victorious. So that's why it's so important to know these things, to know these things. Sin is no longer our master. We need to know that. It's no longer our master. So in other words, what's going to happen? Well, <laughs> the flesh is going to try to convince you that it's still your master. You, you can't you can't resist this. We know that this temptation is too much for you. Right. And the fact of the matter is it used to be. Right. But things changed. Right. There's a new master in town and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. See, but we walk by faith, not by sight. You see now, because here's the thing. The flesh is noisy. It's rowdy. It, it trying to grasp your attention. It tries to it's working all the time to try to trip us up. Christ is in us, too. But he's invisible. And and the way the way in which he says we are to experience him now is by faith. You see, there's sight and feeling versus faith. That's always the battle. The spirit is is our is our uh, the power that we have. The person who directs this new life, the flesh, on the other hand, is it's it's you cannot um, it's it's corrupted and getting worse. Sin is no longer our master. Please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. What Paul is saying is, is that in our battle against sin, to put it that way, that's what people look at it anyway, um, it, it's not anything that we're going to do. It's what we're going to believe. So if you're facing a temptation, let's just say you have a pattern of sin. It's been there ever since you were knee-high to a grasshopper. Pretty short, by the way. Think about it. But so and, and you've proven over years and years and years that you of yourself can't beat it. I mean, that's what Paul says in chapter seven. He says, I, flat, the flesh will make me a prisoner of my, of my body. So. That's the, that's the that's the situation without believing the truth, and that's why it's so important to know these things. First Peter chapter two verse twenty four, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Do you notice anything about this verse that we've already seen this morning? Huh? Yeah, died of sin. And then what did he do on the cross? For our sins. Bore the sins. Now, can you see that there's sins in the plural and sin singular? This one verse captures the whole, what all, all that happened. Christ bore our sins. All right, we'll see what that is in a minute. On the cross in his body. In other words, he took care of our sins in his body on the cross. But not only that, he died also so that we, we might die to sin. There it is. And if you're a believer in Christ, you have. This is saying the same thing that Paul says. Die to sin 
buried, and then raised from the dead with Christ so that you can, what? Live to righteousness, right? So that you can walk in newness of life, as Paul puts it. For by his wounds, you are in the process of being healed. Is that what it says? Does it? No. For by his wounds, you have been, were, you're already healed. You see, that's the that's the truth that the, that the enemies of God don't want you to know. The world doesn't want you to know that you've been healed from sin completely. They want you to think that you're still in it and you're still vulnerable and you could blow it and God could you could do something so bad that God wants nothing to do with you and you know and then worse than that the attacks the attacks the fiery darts that's what they want. The last thing in the world they want any Christian to know is that they've died to sin, that they've already been healed of sinfulness. That's the last thing they want. Why? Because people who know that live victorious lives, as, as Paul says in chapter, in chapter at the end of chapter five. You know, you can reign in life, you know, not because of anything about you, but because of what Christ has done for you, that he's freed you up from sin. He's, he's dealt with all your sins. You're free. You're free. Okay. Sins, plural. And he himself bore our sins, plural. What's that? Well, sins, plural, are the things that we think, say, and do that violate God's word. You can say it different ways, right? You can say to go against God's will. That's that's right, too. Um, some people say miss the mark. I think that understates the uh, the moral implications, you know, you feel like, well, I sinned today, you know, I was shooting for the middle of the bullseye and I only hit the side, you know. <laughs> well, it's not worse than that. It's a direct rebellion against God, right? A particular instance of it. The sins are the particular instances of how we express our rebellion against God, as it were. That's right, well, I'm going to show you a picture that I hope will help in a second. So sin singular, the seed of the rebellion itself. Sins plural, the fruit of that, the things that we say do Think that violate God's word. Okay. Sin versus sins. Well, I want to use a kind of a helpful picture. Hopefully it'll be helpful. Helps me. There. Can you see that? All right. Good. All right. Why? What's this saying? Well, see, you have, um, let me see if I can use this pen. Danger. John is trying to do something. All right. Let's see if I can do this. See that? Is that showing up? Yep. Good. Does that show up on the uh, on Skype? Yeah. When I do that, awesome. All right. So <laughs> here we have a manufacturing plant. I guess I guess now we don't have any of those in the United States, so I guess this is from China. But in any event, um, <laughs> I call it Sin Incorporated. Right. The, the the seat of the rebellion, the place where it all comes from. Right. That's sin singular. That's the rebellion against God. That's the flesh. Then over here, we have the things coming out. Maybe this is Amazon. I don't know. But anyway, all the products coming out of the manufacturing plant. Manufacturing plant, sin itself. The products that come out of it, sins. Sins of the flesh. Mm-hmm. So that, that helps me to remember the difference and make it kind of simple to understand. Because really, it's tough when there's only a one letter difference between two words. Um, sometimes you can get, you know... It may, it may not get clear about it. I, I never, I'll never forget when I was studying good and evil. I looked at the Greek, and the difference is is between kakos and kalos. It's one letter, 
different in the Greek. And not only that, but it, the K and the L, if you know, if you know the kappa and the lambda, there's one little marked difference between the kappa and the lambda. So it's kind of amazing that that, that would be the case in the Greek. I do I I the conclusion that it tells us how difficult it can be to discern between good and evil. Right. So but when you have a situation like that, you really have to take care to have some kind of easy way to remember the difference. So hopefully that that picture helps. Sin, the seed of rebellion, sins of the flesh. Those are the particular acts, thoughts, words that we speak that are that violate God's word. OK. Uh, take the pen off. Uh, we'll continue. OK. So the believer in Christ now. We've looked at the fact of what sin and sins are. We've looked at the fact that Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And he says, you will die to sin. You, you, you will die in your sins. You will die in sin. All right. So we've looked at both. We've looked at sin and we looked at sins. We, we saw that dying, obviously, dying, you will die in your sins. You will die in your sin um, is, a, is, a, is a wretched outcome. And the only thing that's going to prevent that is for someone to believe that I am. That means to believe that Christ is who he says he is, by the way. And in particular, and we're going to see this in a, in a, in a minute, it means that believing that he is the son of God. All right. That's the linchpin of the gospel of John. Right. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And believing you may have life in his name. There it is again. All right. Go from death to life by believing in Jesus Christ. What happens when you believe in Jesus Christ in connection with sin and sins? We've already saw that in terms of sin singular, what happened? We've died to it. We're, we're out of the bondage of the sin. We don't have, in other words, it's no longer kryptonite, if I put it that way. We can resist it, right? Um, not that we do it, but I mean, we have the power inside us now. Uh, based on the death of Christ on the cross, based on the spirit who indwells us, we can be victorious. And in, and in fact, and, and, and in fact, in God's eyes, we've already died to it. That's sin singular. But what about sins, plural? Well, Peter tells us, listen, all those sins that. So in other words, you can you can you can think about the sin problem in two stages. Right. Most of the time, people about think about sins first because those are tangible. You know, um, for the most part, you know, we know how we're thinking and when it's wrong. Right. We know when we say something that's hard, that's harmful. You know, we know that if we kill somebody, it's wrong. Right. So so sins are easier to get your hands around. Right. Sometimes you want to get your hands around somebody's neck, but that's another story. So sins, that's where most people start. Those particular acts and thoughts and words that violate God's word. And in that case, we saw Peter said Christ bore all of our sins on his body on the cross. They, when he went into the grave, they went into the grave. You, you have, he, has, he died so that his blood would cleanse you from all your sins, all of your sins. In other words, the products have been dealt with. If I go back to that picture of the manufacturing plant. Okay, the sins of the flesh have been dealt with. How? When, by Jesus' body on the cross, having them all being born by him, they've been put away. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far... God has placed your sins away from you. It's like he threw them into the depths of the sea. That's sins, plural. See, that's the immediate thing that we that we um, causes us to, to wonder if we're ever going to be uh, acceptable to God. 
you know, I read in the Bible that it says, thou shalt not covet, and I covet. Uh, I, I'm in trouble, right? But no, because of the cross of Christ, all of those sins you did already and you will do have been, have been, uh, have been taken care of. He's borne the guilt of your sins in his body on the cross. In other words, the believer in Christ has what the Bible calls redemption. We've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We sing that song. Well, but what is redemption? Right? And the Bible tells us. And so I think we should pay attention to how the Bible defines it, first and foremost. Okay? And I don't mean the Greek. The Greek is helpful. But when the Bible itself says this is what that is, to me, that's the most best definition of it. And that's why I want you to see Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Colossians 1, 13. The believer in Christ has redemption in Christ. Colossians 1, 13. Verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, the very domain of darkness. We saw Jesus Christ talked about the fact that he who believes in me will no longer be in the darkness, but will become sons of light. And the same thing here. We believe in Christ. God the Father rescued us from the entire domain of darkness. We will never be in darkness again. Why? Because darkness is the place of, of unbelief, rejection of Christ. Now, what else? He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That means we've been moved from the place of darkness to the place of light. In whom, verse 14, in his son, in Christ, we have, we already have it, redemption. And what is redemption according to Colossians 1.14? The forgiveness of sins. See, I'm I'm a simple guy, you know. If I had the choice between having to, I mean, I'd done a lot of this, but between saying, I'm going to find my answer, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to look at the Greek words and then I'm going to go to every lexicon that there ever was and try to figure out what that word means. And that's, that. by the way, that is a great exercise. I'm not putting it down. But when you take what you, your study has come up with and make it superior to what clearly the word of God says, then you're in the wrong place. All right. So, so sometimes it pays to be lazy. I guess that's the moral of the story. No, because it's right here, right? Redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Believers in Christ, what has happened? We have redemption in Christ, right? We have the forgiveness of sins. In other words, if the Jews don't believe that Jesus is who he is, they're going to die in their sins. What does that mean? Well, something opposite has now happened to those who do believe in Christ. And that is your sins are forgiven. They're, they're, they're wiped away in God's eyes, which is that's the only way, by the way, he can look at us and say we're righteous. Right. In his eyes. Right. That we uh, that we have his righteousness. that He's credited to us because he's already dealt with all our sins. You see, that's when we get tripped up too. a lot of times. People say, oh, you know, I'm not righteous. Look at the things I do. God says, hello, look at the cross of Christ. I know about all the things you do. I've dealt with every one of them. OK, so now now I'm telling you. In my eyes, you will be righteous forever. You can believe him, or you can believe the lies of the kingdom of darkness. I like believing the truth. All right, so not only that, so now so now we see also, not only that, and we've seen this already, the believer in Christ is no longer in sin. You're no longer in sin. Sin is in you, 
but you are no longer in sin. In other words, your status in life is no longer in sin. Why? Because you can't be in two places at the same time. Where are you now? In Christ, right? All right. No longer in sin because we died with Christ to sin. In other words, the simple believing in Christ deals with sin and sins all at once. Different ways, but they're all dealt with. This is so freeing. Why? Because it's one thing to say, oh, I think of all the bad things I did in the past. And the Bible tells me that, you know, all those things have been forgiven by God. That's how we tend to think. Then we wake up and then the next day we fall into the temptation. We throw up our hands and say, oh, this, this, this will never change, you know. Well, that's why the truth is that's already changed forever. You've already died to sin. You've already God has already put the spirit in you. To war against the flesh. Nothing that you don't have to, nothing that you do, okay? It's the power of God at work. Oh, don't get me wrong. You cooperate with the power of God. Now, there is a command that says, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. That can only be said to a believer. There'd be a lot shorter statement from the unbeliever. You're going to walk according to the flesh. That's the equivalent scripture for the unbeliever. Why? Because they don't have the Spirit. We do. All right. No longer in sin. We died with Christ to sin. The believer in Christ is no longer in his sins. Why am I saying it this way? Because Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. The believer in Christ is no longer in his sins. Why? Because Christ, Christ has released him from his sins by his blood, by his blood on the cross. All right. Go back to John chapter eight, verse 24. Therefore, I said to you, Jesus speaking to the Jews, that you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Their eternal destiny is all bound up in that simple statement, believe that I am. Believe that I am. Those words, I am, were thunder and lightning. To the Jews, they wouldn't even pronounce that name of God. So when they heard that, see, see, sometimes we read it, and now in the 21st century, we read it in the English, and we missed it. You know, we look at I am, and we see there's a word in italics he, and it kind of says, well, that's a little weird. I'm going to keep going. But I am is would have been a statement that would have just bled in their ears, because that was, as we're going to see, that is the name, personal name of God. Look at um, I. Oops, backwards. Uh, you know, excuse me. Exodus 3, I like playing with things. Exodus 3, verse 13 and 14. I am. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Exodus 3, 13. So we're having quite the day. We've been in the Gospels. We've been in the Epistles. Now we're in the Law. Now what do we have left? I guess the prophets. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. 
Now, God, they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Unless you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, you will die in your sins. I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am. In other words, I am is the personal name of God. So don't miss it. When Jesus says, I am in this context, that's what he's saying. He's saying, I am God. I am Yahweh. Now, that's astounding, but there's something more that we need to consider. And I'd like you to turn to, oh, look, we're going to the prophets. Isaiah chapter 43. (laughs) Isaiah 43.10. Isaiah 43.10. I am, unless you believe that I am, You will die in your sins. That's the personal name of God. By the way, the the, the goal of this gospel, right? John chapter 19, 31. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. We're going to see that I am refers to both of those things. That he's the Son of God and that he's the Christ. Look at Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10. You're my witnesses, declares the Lord. My servant, whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed. There will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed. There was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God, even from eternity. I am he. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it. I want you to notice here in Isaiah 43, he talks about God says, I am he. And, And when he does, he's talking about the fact that he's the savior and that he acts. Can you see that verse in verse 11? I am the Lord and there's no savior besides me. Verse 13, even from eternity, I am he. There is none who can deliver activity out of my hand. I'm going to stop that. I act and who can reverse it. In other words, when here in Isaiah, when the Lord says, I am he, he's, he's referring to his acting to save his people. His action to save his people. What is God's action to save his people? Anybody? Yes, sending his son, right, to die for our sins. In other words, the the office that Jesus takes. He's God, but then he has the office that he takes in order to carry out the mission of dying for the sins of the world. And of course, he does that as as in his humanity. In other words, as the Messiah, as the Son of Man, he's doing that. So here we see that the fact that here what's emphasized is the fact that God will act to save his people. And Jesus is also identifying with this fact. I am the Savior. I am the one God has sent. 
to deliver his people. I am the Messiah. Okay. Unless you believe that I am he, back in eight, let's go back to John 8, 24, and we'll wrap things up today. Eight twenty-four. We'll look at the, the second part of eight twenty-four. Continue. Eight twenty-four B. We say, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. The Jews won't even entertain the idea. They won't let it get into their head that he's claiming to be Yahweh. That they can't. They can't. That can't. That won't register with them. They just can't be. So then, therefore, they have to ask the obvious question. Lord, unless I believe that you are, well, then who are you? John 28, 25. So they were saying to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, notice what he said. What have I been saying to you from the beginning? He's already told them who he is. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. This is what he's saying. I've already told you all this. You know, I was going to be at the point in time where I got some specific things to say and judge concerning you. However... There's a bigger picture here. I have a mission that goes worldwide. He sent me, but he who sent me, the Father, is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. In other words, his priority now is sending the message of truth that the Father gave him to the world. So he's he's already given you know lots of information to the Jewish people. Okay, verse 27. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. This is what... This is what must have made Jesus want to just shake him, right? So Jesus said, notice this. Now he's pointing to the past, pointing his relationship with his father. Now he's going to point to the future. Basically, he's going to say, you know what? Listen, I know you're not believing me now. I know you're not listening to me now. I know you have hostility, but there'll be a time when you can't mistake who I am. Verse 28, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am. When you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am. By the way, they, they don't know what he's talking about here either. <laughs> but we do. See, there's a there's a sense in which he is, I won't say playing with them exactly, but he's intentionally forcing them to accept who he is because otherwise they're not going to know what he's talking about at all. Right? When you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me, the Father, is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's a statement of deity, too, by the way. Can anybody here today get up and say you always do the things that are pleasing to God? All right, good. <laughs> I have some good psychiatrists if you think that's true. Um, he spoke these things as he did so many came to believe in him. Verse 25 could be the title for this entire gospel. Who is Jesus? Jesus tells them, I'm going to just skip for the, for the for the sake of time. I'm going to move through this rather quickly. He says three things. What have I been saying about myself and my father? Right. Two, he identifies I'm the one that the father sent with the message of truth. Okay. And then three, you won't really know who I am until they lift up the son of man. That's who he is. Think about it. I've already been telling you. All right, all along about me and my father. Who am I? I was sent by the father with the message of truth. You won't really know who I am, though, until they lift up the Son of Man. I don't know if you remember, but earlier on, again, for the sake of time, we're just going to summarize here. 
Jesus told Nicodemus the same thing. Unless, you know, he says, listen, as Moses left, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Okay? He'll say it again in chapter 12. Actually, if you go there quickly, John chapter 12, verse 31. I do want you to see this. You will you won't know who I am now until they lift up the Son of Man. Jesus said to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. John twelve thirty one. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world, Satan, will be cast out. Verse thirty two. And I here it is one more time. And I am if I am lifted up. From the earth, now he's getting very specific, getting close to the cross. He's describing the fact that he will be lifted up from the earth by the cross when he's on the cross. When that happens, I will draw all men to myself. What's he talking about? Verse 33, he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. When you, you won't really know who I am until they lift me up on the cross. He would die on the cross to sit as the Savior of all men to glorify his Father. When he does that, they will know who he is. Like the, like the Roman centurion, truly this was the Son of God. It's the cross. The cross opens up the eyes of the people to who he is. The cross is the means by which Jesus glorifies the Father. But he would be lifted up again three days later in the resurrection in glory. And then 40 days after that, he would be lifted up to heaven in his ascension. One day he will be lifted up, lifted up, and he will be high and exalted forever. And at that time, every eye will see him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will complain. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He, He will be lifted up in many ways. For us already, in terms of the cross, resurrection, ascension, and session. But then one day, every eye is going to see him when he comes up. And he will be high and lifted up. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. All right, let's close now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this that your word is so magnificent that 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 you had John record these things that happened over 2,000 years ago. And yet by means of the Holy Spirit, they just leap off the page into our hearts. And we just uh, thank you for the magnificence of how John has, has presented who your son is. We ask, Father, that we would also to have these truths change our lives, especially this morning, the truth about the fact that we've died to sin and that Jesus bore all of our sins on his body on the cross. With that in mind, Father, we um, we ask now that you would have the Holy Spirit guide us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, bringing into remembrance the death of the Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, at this time, please uh, prepare your individually packaged Communion elements.
as you watch me struggle with this, even though I've done it a hundred times, you can see you can see that we all get some gifts and not others. Am I the only one having trouble? No, you can be honest and say yes. Yes, you are. Yes, I am. Yeah, that's a good point. I could lie and tell you that I'm a master at this and I just do this to rest my voice. But if that were true, why have I been talking all the time? Okay. In John 12, 32, we heard this morning Jesus saying, and I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Jesus was lifted up from the earth when he was nailed to the cross. The most horrible way imaginable to die physically. Moses had lifted up the serpent in the desert so that the Jews who were dying of serpent bites could just simply look at the, at the serpent that had been lifted up and live. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, he, he would draw all men to himself as their savior. He's the true light. He enlightens every man. Every man. We have the privilege of being able to speak. We, we, we have the agency by whom God cho- chooses to deliver the message that enlightens every man. What a privilege. And yet God says that every man is enlightened by the truth. Of who his son is. Because he is the light of the world. Hope that will dispel some people's concerns. About the idea that God can be unfair. And what about the people who have never heard. Because they've all. God has given them all. The information that they need. Somewhere or other. To understand that they're sinners. God's real. God has a son. God's son died for them. Okay. You draw all men to himself as their savior. The true light. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Savior of the world. Paul told Timothy this in 1 Timothy. He wrote that this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, that he desires all men to be saved, all men and women, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom, bringing into remembrance the death of the Lord, he gave himself as a ransom for all, for all. Christ didn't just die on the cross for the believers or these so-called elect. I say that we are elect, but the idea that there's a special category, that God chose some and not others. No, he gave himself as a ransom for all, all men. He's the savior of the world. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In his death, he draws all men to himself. And then he goes on in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, and he says this, For it is for this, Timothy, we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men. And, And then some people want to say, well, he's just talking about all the believers. Except that the Holy Spirit adds something at the end. Let me read it again. This is this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God 
who is the savior of all men, especially of believers. You see, he didn't, he's not just the savior of believers. He's a savior for everybody. He died on the cross for everybody. He is the light that enlightens every man. Or what Timothy, what, what, what Paul wrote to Timothy, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Notice here that it was particularly important that the men who would preach the gospel know this fact. Timothy, Titus, they were the ones that he was passing on the mantle to, Paul was. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly and righteously in this present age. All men. He is the light that enlightens every man. When he is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. Through his death, he is the, he is the ransom for all. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here we are now here to celebrate the Lord's Supper by proclaiming his death until he comes again. How, how magnificent the truth that he died for all men and women. His body was offered on the cross for all men and women. His blood was poured out for all for the forgiveness of sins. Poured out. Everyone has the opportunity now to, to believe in Christ and have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Gave himself on the cross as a ransom for all. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you gather together as, a, as one family and eat this bread and drink the cup, you, as a body, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. You see, for us who have believed, we have already taken seriously the warning. We're already born again. But now the Lord's death is, is, is reminding us of the fact also that one day he will come. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That will be when we see him for, for exactly who he is. God, man, one who died for our sins. It will all be literally visible to us when we ascend in the clouds with him. Father, we thank you so much for the richness of your word, of how you enable us to enter into these truths and draw us closer to your son and to you a very intimate, loving relationship that you've established for us. And we ask now, Father, that we would be those who proclaim the death of your son until he comes back so that others may have the opportunity to believe. And, and also they would be among those who would be uh, ascending in the clouds with him when he returns for us, for the church. We also, Father, thank you so much for all the gifts that you've given us every spiritual blessing we thank you that you've given us jesus to die for us and be raised from the dead and we ask as we leave today father too that you would continue to and we know you will 
to bless and take care of all your children. We ask this in Christ's name by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right. Thanks for your patience today. I know I went a little longer than usual. Um, reminders. We always have Bible study, almost always. Um, we will have it this Thursday, God willing. And as Lamb says, and the creeks don't rise. That's what he always says. Love that. But yeah, Thursday, at February 10th at 6.30 p.m. We are on Skype and in person. Um, just remember, I want to remind you briefly that um, that giving for the church is a matter of personal decision in your relationship with the Lord, and it is an expression of your gratitude to all that he's done for you. So please do it in that light. That's why we don't pass around baskets so people feel guilty if they don't drop anything in, so they take an empty envelope and, you know, no, they don't do that. I'm just teasing <laughs> So, but it's, that's not supposed to be like that. You know, we're supposed to say, I've been receiving so much blessing from the Lord in my life. I know the importance of the word of God. I know there are saints that are hurting out there. I want to do everything I can, just like God did everything he could for me. I, I, I take care of my own needs. God said, no, listen, I want you to, I'm going to give you extra. This is how it's going to work in the church, not like tithing. So I'm going to provide you extra as you give, and then you're going to find out you have more extra at times, too, because it's a, you're a good vehicle. You're a good channel for the Lord to use to, to provide uh, resources for people in need. So that's the, that's the spirit we should have. Cheerful giver. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we close today, we just ask Father, that you, that you would have the spirit continue to imprint these truths on our hearts as we're reminded of them so that our minds can be transformed and renewed. That may lead to us living this new life that you've given us, which includes ministering to the saints and to and to preach the gospel, all the things that are part of this Christian way of life. We just uh, help, ask that help the Spirit, have the Spirit help us to be able to live that way. We ask this in Christ's name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.